if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. All right, welcome everybody. Pastor Eli James here. This is the Restoration Hour on Eurofolk Radio. And tonight we're going to continue with the theme we started last week about the oldest letters in the world, a book by Mrs. Sidney Bristow, which I, I don't have the book in front of me at the moment. I think it was published around 1928 or something like that. She was far ahead of her time because, number one, she's a Christian identity author and understands who the Israelites are and understands who the demon bloodline are, okay? So, so she was so far ahead of her time with regard to the rest of archaeology, it's, it's ridiculous. But uh, I want to give people a, a heads up as to what the current status of, let's call it secular archaeology is, and that includes Judeo-Christian archaeology because they have no idea about Christian identity either and don't realize how Christian identity informs everything scriptural and historical. So I'm going to start by playing this audio, which is kind of a mainstream version of how Amenhotep IV, uh, also known as Akhenaten, is viewed by mainstream archaeology. And, of course, Mrs. Sidney Bristow, in part one, we revealed that she understands that Amenhotep IV is the pharaoh who controlled Canaan land during the time that Joshua and the Israelites were invading that territory. And she already had figured out that Akhenaten, also known as Amenhotep IV, really was in no position to help the Canaanites because they're kingdom was very much weakened by Yahweh when he destroyed their army, having, uh, chasing Moses and the Israelites into the Red Sea, where they all, the, the entire army, almost, almost all the entire army drowned. This left Egypt in a very much weakened condition. Of course, they didn't want to admit that to the Canaanites, <laughs> right? And uh, also set in motion the change in gods, because Egypt was ruled by a pantheon of pagan gods, which the priesthood still wanted to maintain, but which the pharaohs, subsequent to the destruction of the Egyptian army, began to waver away from and toward Yahweh, because it was really obvious that the God of the Israelites was more powerful than the pantheon of the Egyptian gods and goddesses. And this is exactly how Mrs. Sidney Bristow analyzes the situation, really on top of the game, far, far more uh, scholarly 
and insightful than anybody else who's ever come along since. And so in a 100 years, nobody has been able to improve on what she has done. So here, let's go. It's about a, it's only a six-minute video. And it's talking about, again, this is the standard view of Akhenaten. Here we go. It was during the 19th century, at the dawn of a new era of serious archaeological inquiry, that the extensive remains of an ancient city were discovered in Egypt in a secluded, arid plateau, roughly in the centre of the country. Whilst the site was certainly an interesting example of Egyptian architecture from the 18th dynasty, roughly the period between 1549 to 1292 BC, it seemed unremarkable at first, especially when compared to the vast wealth of other discoveries being unearthed in places such as the Valley of the Kings. This was until evidence began to surface of the mysterious god-king who had built the city in the first place, along with significant evidence of precisely why he had built it. The city had been called Amarna, and it had served as a royal capital to a mysterious and powerful pharaoh, who supposedly carved it out of the desert in a seemingly ridiculous place on a whim. His name was Akhenaten, and during his 17-year reign as pharaoh, pursued the particularly unusual policy of rejecting the traditional Egyptian gods, in preference to a brand new religion, which he had apparently created himself, based upon the worship of a single solar deity named Aten. Whilst much that happened during this time is still shrouded in mystery, a number of modern scholars have credited Akhenaten's religion as being one of the first monotheistic creeds on earth. The peculiar nature of his reign and his rejection of the old gods is certainly unique within Egypt during the ancient world, and possibly even within the wider world. Akhenaten was born during an extremely prosperous period in Egyptian history. It was a golden age of architecture and cultural achievements, and Akhenaten's father, Amenhotep, had spent much of his reign building temples and monuments to the gods. All of the evidence suggests that he was very much the typical traditional Egyptian pharaoh, the latest in a long line, dating back thousands of years. When Akhenaten succeeded his father for the first five years of his reign... Okay, in this video, they show Akhenaten being very much deformed, and Mrs. Sidney Bristow explains the reason for this is because the priesthood, the pagan priesthood, hated Akhenaten because of his monotheism and therefore depicted him as being disfigured, his whole body, not just his face. They depicted his whole body as being disfigured and therefore, in order to besmirch him in their own minds and for future generations, and that's why he's he's depicted as such, as you can see in this video. Let's continue. He seems to have continued his father's work, as was tradition. Sometime during his fifth year of rule, however, Akhenaten strayed further from the norm than any pharaoh before or after. Whilst he had previously spent much of his time dedicating temples solely to the Egyptian gods related to the sun, he now outright rejected all of the old gods, in preference for exclusive worship of one solar deity, Aten. Stunned bureaucrats and court followers could do little but go along with the king's new religion, 
even as he uprooted the entire royal court and administrative heart of the kingdom from Memphis and Thebes and moved them out into the desert to start work on his new capital. It was an epic undertaking, and one surely only achievable because of the immense wealth and power possessed by Egypt at the time. The location of the city was said to have come to Akhenaten in a vision, and was possibly marked by a naturally occurring blemish in the cliff face which resembled the Egyptian hieroglyph for the sun. Akhenaten built truly colossal temples at Amarna, larger than any previously built. Of course, this place is called Amarna, which is the subject of the Amarna Letters, the story of the oldest letters in the world by Mrs. Sidney Bristow. And Tel El Amarna has been now extensively researched by modern Christian archaeologists, and over and over again, they tend to verify Mrs. Bristow's analysis. Let's continue. And of a completely different type. Gone were the dark, closed interiors and idols of the old religion. In their place came great roofless courtyards to worship the sun itself. By all accounts, the city thrived as thousands of commoners and nobles alike travelled to the new site. It's likely that most nobles still worship the old gods in secret. Small <laughs> idols found at Damana support this theory. The common people, on the other hand, largely left out of the historical record, likely weren't affected too much by the new religion, which seems to have been largely an aristocratic affair. In 1907, a tomb was uncovered at Amarna and subsequently excavated. The mummified remains found inside are widely believed to be those of Akhenaten, and they just add further to the enigma of this mysterious ruler. The mummy appears to have strange, elongated features, which many have suggested could have been the result of birth defects, possibly even as a result of inbreeding, or even intentional cranial deformation, as other people have practiced throughout the world. Contemporary depictions of the king also portray him in a similar manner, with unusual effeminate features. Images of the pharaoh and his wife Nefertiti also represent a huge break from the traditional culture of Egypt, often portraying them eating and in domestic situations with their families, which is absolutely unique for Egyptian royalty, who were usually portrayed as aloof and almost inhuman. Upon Akhenaten's death, the resurgence to the old beliefs came fairly quickly, although it's unclear just how quickly this happened and how devastating it was for the followers of Aten. The old gods were restored to their former prominence and Akhenaten was struck from the historical record. We know that the young heir to the throne, Tutankhamun, changed his name to Tutankhamun in reverence to the old gods, rather than to the Aten worshipped by his father, who in turn began to be referred to as the Great Enemy and the Great Heretic in the aftermath of his reign. Great efforts were made to expunge all evidence of him and his religion from history. The city of Amarna itself was gradually abandoned to be reclaimed by the desert, only to be rediscovered by archaeologists millennia later. Okay, there you have the standard view of the reign of Amenhotep III and Amenhotep IV, which they really can't explain why those two regents would change the religion of Egypt so drastically and why they should be depicted, and especially Akhenaten should be depicted in a male-formed state. And we have found out from Mrs. Sidney Bristow that's because they began to worship uh, after the Exodus. The Egyptian pharaohs gradually began to worship Yahweh, (laughs) but in the form of the sun disk, not, of course, in the way that the Israelites worshipped Yahweh, as an imageless personality. 
So her analysis really explains a lot of the mystery contained in this video. It, it certainly does. But it seems like nobody outside of identity has even heard of Mrs. Sidney Bristow. So let's continue. I'm going to now quote from an article. I posted the link in the chat room already. Recent archaeological finds, this is actually dated 2014, and this is Amenhotep III and his son, posted on February 11, 2014, by Claude Mariottini, and he gives us a little autobiographical sketch here. I am Emeritus Professor of Old Testament at Northern Baptist Seminary. I was born in Brazil. I graduated from California Baptist College, Golden Gate Baptist Seminary, the Southern Baptist Seminary, and have done additional graduate work at the Graduate Theological Union, etc. So he's got a long list of uh, credits here. But let's get into the article. All right, here's an image of Amenhotep III. Now, the image of Amenhotep III is not distorted like we see images of Amenhotep IV, otherwise known as Akhenaten. All right, it says, Archaeologists digging in Egypt have made a discovery that could bring major changes to Egyptian history and chronology. Below is a summary of a news report announcing a discovery related to Amenhotep III and his son, Amenhotep IV. A team of Spanish and Egyptian archaeologists made a find in a southern Egyptian tomb that opens the way to a reinterpretation of pharaonic chronology, since it could show that Amenhotep III and his son Amenhotep IV reigned together. Something never dreamed of before by archaeologists. Now, it could be possible that uh, Amenhotep III and IV reigned in different parts of Egypt because we have Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt, Lower Egypt being closer to the Mediterranean, the low-lying lands, and Upper Egypt being the southern end, which uh, you know is becoming more and more mountainous as you go into southern Africa. Okay, so this is very interesting. Did they raid together? The team, headed by Spaniard Francisco Martin Valentin and funded by Spain's Gaselic Foundation, excavated the remains of a wall and columns of the mausoleum of a minister of the 18th Pharaonic Dynasty, which goes from 1569 to 1315 B.C., okay? And we place the entry of Joshua and the Israelites into Palestine in the year 1406 B.C. from various evidence in the, in this, in the province of Luxor. What is exceptional about the discovery, Martin Valentin told EFE, which is E-F-E, not sure what that stands for, is that in the excavation they found the names of Amenhotep III and Amenhotep IV carved together. This could confirm that the two pharaohs governed jointly between nine and ten years of the 39 that Amenhotep III governed, since the hieroglyphics on the columns explain that they were both sovereigns of Upper and Lower Egypt, the archaeologist said. There is nothing similar in pharaonic history, Martin Valentin said decisively. The reigns of Amenhotep III, also known by the Hellenized name of Amenapis III, 
and Amenhotep IV, who went down in history as Akhenaten, are among the most significant in ancient Egypt for a number of reasons. The father governed a country that witnessed one of its greatest periods of prosperity and internal stability under his long, almost 40-year reign. Until now, experts thought the son had rebelled against his father's way of ruling, and that after succeeding him on the throne when he died, acquired the name Akhenaten and established monotheism for the first time with Aten as the supreme deity. But this new discovery, Martin Valentin said, could indicate that the father and son were together in this revolutionary movement since they shared the throne for some ten years. Scholars have debated whether Amenhotep III and his son Amenhotep IV reigned together. In an article in the Wikipedia summarizes this debate, quote, there is currently no conclusive evidence of a co-regency between Amenhotep III and his son Akhenaten. A letter from the Amarna Palace archives dated to the year 2 rather than year 12 of Akhenaten's reign from the Mitannian king Tushrata, which we have already named from the letters, the oldest letters in the world, although she spells it Dushrata with a D. Here they spell it with a T, Tushrata. Amarna letter EA27 preserves a complaint about the fact that Akhenaten did not honor his father's promise to forward to Shrata statues made of solid gold as part of a marriage dowry for sending his daughter, Tadukepa, into the pharaoh's household. This correspondence implies that if any co-regency occurred between Amenhotep III and Akhenaten, it lasted no more than a year. Lawrence Berman observes in a 1998 biography of Amenhotep III that, quote, it is significant that the proponents of the co-regency theory have tended to be art historians, whereas historians such as Donald Redford and William Murnane have largely remained unconvinced. Recognizing that the problem admits no easy solution, the present writer has gradually come to believe that it is unnecessary to propose a co-regency to explain the production of art in the reign of Amenhotep III. Rather, the perceived problems appear to be derived from the interpretation of mortuary objects, unquote. If this new discovery proves that there was a co-regency then, Amenhotep III's attempt to curtail the power of the priesthood could be an indication that father and son were involved in what became a movement to establish monotheism in Egypt. Amenhotep III's son, Amenhotep IV, is better known as Akhenaten, a name meaning the splendor of Aten. The reason Akhenaten is well known is because he abolished the power of the priests of Amun, A-M-U-N, closed many temples where the Egyptian gods were worshipped, and established the cult of the sun god Aten. After the death of his father, Amenphosis IV, I guess that's the Greek version of Amenhotep III. Uh, Amenophis IV moved the Egyptian capital to Amarna, where he established the worship of Aten. I guess this is Amenophis is a reference to Akhenaten. This monotheistic religion emerged in Egypt a century or so before Moses. Well, no, that's incorrect. They got the timing wrong here. Some scholars have intimated that the monotheistic characteristics of Akhenaten's religion influenced the monotheism taught by Moses. No, it's actually the other way around. In fact, Aten has some characteristics that are very similar to the character and nature of the God of Israel. There we go. 
For instance, Aten was believed to be the creator God who created out of nothing. Well, who created. There's no indication that he created out of nothing. He created it out of his own being by the power of the word. However, the religion of Akhenaten was not a pure monotheistic religion since Aten was the personification of the sun. Thus, his religion comes closer to pantheism than monotheism. Okay, so that's kind of uh, where we're at, theologically or archaeologically, with regard to the transition from pagan polytheism to a what we would call a qualified monotheism under Akhenaten. So now let's turn back to Mrs. Sidney Bristow and her outstanding book, The Oldest Letters in the World. And now we are in chapter 6, and she says, Tyre destroyed by Joshua. So she had chronicled the life of Joshua and the Israelites taking over Canaan land from the south to the north. And Tyre was, of course, in the north. In this section of her book, she wants to prove that the Israelites did, in fact, take Tyre and Sidon, and that these Israelites who took Tyre and Sidon became known as the Phoenicians. Let's continue. She says, The important question is now, what do the tablets say about Tyre, which was probably in an even stronger Canaanite fortress than Sidon? No account of the fall of Tyre has been found, as far as I know, among the Amarna tablets. Considering that hundreds of them have been destroyed since their excavation, we can hardly hope for a complete history of the conquest of Phoenicia. The tablets do show, however, that Tyre was being attacked and overcome by Hebrews, which, combined with certain other evidence, proves to my mind that it also fell to the Israelites. The Egyptian official of Tyre writes to Amenhotep, quote, I watched the city of Tyre, the handmaid of the king, my lord. Is not the king nourished by this city of Tyre? Lo, if I am destroyed, the king will be destroyed, unquote. The Paka, who is the Egyptian head of the embassy there, evidently considered Tyre almost necessary to an almost necessary to Amenhotep. He continues, quote, No, O king, desolation has remained with me, with the Paka in the city of Tyre. There is no water or wood for us, and alas, there is no one remaining to stand up for me, unquote. This is from the book by Condor, page 108. The Paka then says that the chief of the Amorites is destroying them and makes it clear that the Amorites came from Sidon, which city he also shows had been taken by Hebrews, quoted from Petrie in his book on page 95. And so in our first episode, she explained that the, these, these people that are being referred to as Amorites were in fact Israelites, the Canaanites made this mistake because these Israelites came out of Amorite territory, which they had already besieged and defeated. So they made the mistake of referring to the Israelites as Amorites, and that clarifies the situation. He says that the ruler of Sidon is collecting ships, chariots, and soldiers to seize Tyre. He writes again that Tyre 
is rebelling and that the ruler of Sidon is taking away his people. He says, quote, All will break out. Let the king give countenance to his servant and let him leap forth to go out as a conqueror, unquote. Tyre was in a sorry plight, attacked by sea and land and rebellion within her gates. Can we believe that Joshua did not seize the opportunity of destroying the danger spot which Tyre would have always been to the Israelites? Sentences from a letter written by Rivadi suggest that the Paca perished in Tyre. He writes, quote, Behold, Tyre has acted rebelliously. Verily, they killed their commander and also my sister and her sons. I had sent them to Tyre for fear of Abdesherah. And we concluded last time that Abdesherah is in fact Joshua. That was the name that the Tyrians and Sidonians had given to Joshua, not knowing that he was an Israelite or what he was actually. They assumed he was an Amorite. Verily, I have written thus to the palace, but my requests have not been carried out nor listened to, unquote. Yet, according to both the authorized and revised versions of the Bible, Joshua never even tried to conquer Tyre. Instead of doing so, he attacked and burnt an inland city called Hazor, which could not have been so important as Tyre especially if only 11 miles from Tyre, <laughs> as both Professor Petrie and Major Connors say it was. For the tablets and the Bible show that Tyre was chief of the cities in her neighborhood. Absolutely. In contrast, uh, okay, let's see, lost my place here, sorry. Okay, uh, oh, if the translators of those versions of the Bible could have known that the tablet, what the tablets say about Tyre, they would surely have done what another translator has done, given Tyre as the city burnt down by Joshua instead of Hazor. Thank you very much. All right. Why Farrar Fenton does this in his version of the Bible only as a great Oriental scholar, as he was, could explain. Considering that the letters Z-O-R... The last letters in Hazor are the Hebrew name for Tyre, meaning a rock, and that Hazor and Khazor, K-H-A-Z-O-R, simply means the rock, ha or ka being the definite article, the, there may easily have been a mistake. Upon the Amarna tablets, Tyre seems to be called Tsuri, T-S-U-R-R-I, and Kazura. Names very similar to Kazaria <laughs> or Kazar. Very interesting. Whatever Farrar Fenton's reasons may have been for changing the name of Hazar to Tyre, the fact that Tyre is described in the Amarna letters as being attacked and overcome by Hebrews leaves little doubt that he was right in doing so. Judging by the Egyptian Paka's account of the destruction going on in Tyre, Joshua cannot have found much to do when he arrived before that city except to burn it to the ground, which he did, according to Farrar Fenton's version of the Bible. His reason being that, as we read in the 11th chapter of Joshua, Tyre was the head of the kingdoms, or as Farrar Fenton more convincingly translated, head of chiefdoms. 
The Amarna tablets support this description of Tyre. The Paca writes, quote, My plain is at my hand, oh, my plain is my land over against my highlands, over against the plain of my cities. And the city, Sarbitu, is to be guarded by the city of Tyre. Besides which, Ribadi writes, quote, Now the territory of Tyre is certainly not the territory of a feudal prince. It is in the same condition as the territory of Ugarit. Ugarit is supposed to have been an independent state of Syria. In Farrar Fenton's version, it is, of course, Jabin, king of Tyre, not Jabin, king of Hazor, who calls out other Canaanite chiefs to fight against the Israelites. That Jabin led the Canaanite army, which was destroyed before Sidon, is probably why the Egyptian Paca writes to Amenhotep, quote, Lo, destruction has remained with me, with the Paca in the city of Tyre, and alas, there is none to stand up for me, unquote. Perhaps the Paca had heard of King Jabin's death in battle. On the Amarna tablets, according to Major Condor, page 112, Jabin writes, evidently just before leading his soldiers against Joshua, he says, quote, To the king, my lord, thus says Jabin, Yabenu, chief of the city of Kazura, lo, I am guarding the fortresses of the king, my lord, and I am departing. Lo, they come. Unquote. The letter is broken, but ends with the suggestive words, Moreover, behold, and my place with... Okay, sorry, lost my place momentarily. My place with soldiers. May not those broken sentences tell the tale of King Jabin's going forth to war? Sounds like it. Accepting these conclusions, we have a reasonable account of the conquest of Palestine. Can we reject the translators' accounts of the civil war going on in Phoenicia between tribes of Canaanites while the Israelites were on their borders conquering the rest of Palestine? Very good question. Now on page 37. We can ignore such stories as that told by a German professor and reproduced in our Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges, in which he says that the Israelites never conquered Phoenicia, that in his own words, quote, they dwelt among the Canaanites, and though not nominally subject people, they were so thoroughly checked in their plans of conquest and dashed their strength so uselessly against the strong rock of Canaanite power that in the shock of failure they settled down side by side with the Canaanites, unquote. Well, now that's not the case. What happened was the Israelites did get tired of fighting against the Canaanites, but put them under tribute. And so that's not the same as being side by side. The Israelites exacted tribute from the Canaanites. Let's continue. Would such a thing be possible in any age? Can we imagine the Germans before Paris checked in their plan of conquest, settling down side by side with the French? Yet this is what we are taught in our schools about the conquest of Phoenicia. Accepting as proved by the Amarno tablets that Phoenicia, as well as the other parts of Palestine, was conquered by the Israelites, we see that Amenhotep's behavior was not due to, as some Egyptologists think it was, to the king's incredible apathy and ignorance of what was going on in Palestine, 
but that Amenhotep only did what, as a believer in the God of the Hebrews, he was bound to do. He allowed the Israelites to take possession of the land which had been promised to them. So I'm not totally convinced that Akhenaten was a total believer in the God Yahweh, but considering the fact that Egypt was very much weakened by Yahweh's destruction of their army, that subsequent pharaohs, uh, three following the pharaoh under Moses, would uh, worship Yahweh or some semblance of Yahweh and have not very much power in Canaan land after all. Continuing, accepting this theory, we need not doubt the inspired genius of Joshua's leadership. It had been decreed that the western border of the Israelites' possessions should be the Mediterranean Sea. Joshua fulfilled that decree by conquering Phoenicia. Believing that Joshua destroyed Tyre, we can acquit the Jewish historian, ah, the Judahite historian Josephus, of the anachronism of which he has been thought guilty in saying that Tyre was built only 200 years before Solomon's temple was built. Although we learned in the book of Joshua that Tyre was an important city at least 50 years before the time at which Josephus says it was, was built. It was evidently the build, rebuilding of Tyre by the tribe of Asher after its destruction by Joshua, to which Josephus refers. Very good. We see, too, that the writer of the 8th Psalm did not exaggerate when he described the vine by which he typified the Israelites as filling the land of Palestine when transplanted there from Egypt and as sending out its branches into the sea. Yeah, because our people, unlike the Jews, have always been a seafaring people. Neither of which could be the neither of which could the Israelites have been said to have done if they had not conquered Phoenicia. We can better understand Ezekiel's words to Tyre in twenty eight verse fifteen quote Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day thou wast created unquote. How could those words have been addressed to a city built by Canaanites? <laughs> well, I think that word that word was addressed to Lucifer, before he was he rebelled. It must have been the new city of Tyre, built presumably by the tribe of Asher, to which Ezekiel refers. Now, that's interesting. I'll have to think about that some more. Anyway, that the tribe of Asher possessed Tyre, the crowning city whose merchants were princes, as Isaiah describes Tyre, shows the fulfillment of a strange prophecy made by Jacob in Genesis 49, verse 20, after promising Judah the scepter, emblem of perpetual royalty, Jacob promised Asher, quote, royal dainties, otherwise translated as royal pleasures. In the time of Hiram, king of Tyre, whose fleets plowed the sea with that of King Solomon, bringing back the produce of many lands, including from America, that promise made to Asher by Jacob was fulfilled. Well, that would be simply a, uh, an additional fulfillment because the tribes, of course, continue to exist and we still all exist today and still fulfill prophecy. So, so far, so good. Mrs. Sidney Bristow is doing really an outstanding job of interpreting 
all of these historical events as contained in the Tell El Amarna letters. Okay. All right, good evening to all the people in the chat room. Welcome. Let's get back to our wonderful story from the book by Mrs. Sidney Bristow, Chapter 7, The Haberi in the Isles of the West. Now, of course, the Haberi is the secular name given to the Hebrews by virtually all secular scholars, and uh, they don't want to admit that there was a person named Eber, (laughs) right, one of our patriarchs, who was the father of the Hebrews. They don't want to admit that, so they refer to the Haberi as a wandering tribe. They they assume the name means to cross over, meaning crossing rivers and, and such. So, the Haberi in the Isles of the West. This interpretation of the Amarna tablets, showing that Israelites and not Amorites conquered Phoenicia in the reign of Amenhotep IV of Egypt, and that therefore the Phoenicians of later times were Israelites, contradicts modern writers, who undoubtedly influenced by the translator's interpretation of the tablets, say that the Phoenicians were Canaanites. And she cites the Encyclopedia Britannica, Volume 21, etc., The general opinion of the origin of the Phoenicians is expressed by Bosworth Smith in his History of Carthage, which was a Phoenician colony. He writes, It was lucky for the civilization of the ancient world that the Israelites did not destroy the Canaanites as they were commanded to do, for that accursed race became the enterprising mariners and and dauntless colonizers of the world. No, but the Canaanites never were known for their seafaring ability. Never, not even to this day. The expression, quote, accursed race, evidently refers sarcastically to Noah's prophecy, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be. As there were nothing servile about the Phoenicians, whom Bosworth Smith believed to have been Canaan's descendants, he thought that Noah's prophecy had failed. As, however, the tablets show that Israelites and not Canaanites conquered Phoenicia, we see that it was the Israelites who became the enterprising mariners and dauntless colonizers, the men peerless in peace and war, and as the Phoenicians are described by the second century historian Pomponius Mela, Pomponius Mela, Times History, and Noah's prophecy did not fail. That's correct. It did not fail because the Canaanites were subservient to the Egyptians and ultimately to the Israelites, having assumed a new identity under Esau, who became their leader. Okay, because the prophecy clearly states the elder shall serve the younger, although it was not a condition of abject slavery. The Israelites simply held the Edomites under tribute. So they simply exacted tribute from Canaanite communities instead of uh, making them full slaves. So let's continue. For to the Israelites' ancestor Shem, he had prophesied a ruling race, and to the ancestor of the subjugated Canaanites, a race of slaves. Very good. Page 46. 
According to my interpretation of the Amarna tablets, the 16th century historian Camden was nearer the mark than our modern writers, for he wrote that the Phoenicians who came to Britain making settlements in these islands were, quote, Judahites with Tyrians and Sidonians. Okay, so the Tyrians and Sidonians being primarily the tribe of Asher, and I forget which other uh, tribe uh, was up there. But yeah, she says Danites in the next sentence, so let me just read it. If he had said that they were Asherites and Danites instead of saying that they were Jews <laughs> or Judahites, he would, I believe, have been quite right for the tribes of Asher and Dan were the seafaring tribes of Israel. And so were the rest of them, just about all of the tribes of Israel, with the possible exception of Simeon, which was totally landlocked. And there were a couple of landlocked tribes as well, but nevertheless, they all had, uh, even Benjamin had uh, seafaring people. So virtually all of the 12 tribes were seafarers to a greater or lesser extent. Okay, so let's continue here. The Tyrians and Sidonians, quote-unquote, who came with the quote-unquote Jews to Britain, obviously she knows that they were Judahites, were probably the Canaanitish slaves of the Israelites. That's possible? They might not have had any slaves at all. They might have just sailed on their own. That they were, quote, put to task work here as they had been in Palestine, and that their descendants became the serfs of the ancient feudal system, seems probable, she says. A remarkable reason for the coming to Britain of the people he calls Jews is given by Camden. He says that they came because they had understood that the future empire of the world would be in the West. Well, who would have known that but the people of Yahweh? Several verses in the Bible throw light upon the statement, Isaiah 41, Zechariah 10, verse 9, 1 Chronicles 17, verse 6, and 10, 2 Samuel 7, 10, and 11. In the 11th chapter of Isaiah, we find the words, quote, Yahweh shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people from the islands of the sea. And of course, that is happening now. It's, it has never really ceased. Because Yahshua said, You shall not have gone over the cities of Israel until the Son of Man be come. So that is when he comes the second time. We will still be trying to convert. We will still be sermonizing and being missionaries to the Israelites of the world and to the rest of the white race. So that, that has never ceased and it never will, not until the kingdom actually comes. The Hebrew, Hebrew word yam, Y-A-M for sea, also means west, Young's Analytical Concordance. Taking the word Yom as West, which the translators of the Bible have done in the 14th verse of the same chapter, Camden's quote-unquote Jews may have gathered from that verse that their home was to be in the islands of the West, whence they would eventually return to Palestine. At least some of them would. Herodotus, the father of history, and the Scythopolis was a town they founded, Herodotus, the father of history, agrees with this reading of the tablets. He says that according to the most learned Persians of his time, 5th century B.C., 
The Phoenicians came from the Erythrean Sea, that is the Mediterranean, from which, as it is included in the Red Sea, the Israelites certainly may be said to have come. Nor are we quite without modern authority for believing that the Phoenicians were Hebrews. The German specialist in, quote, Shemitic languages, Theodor Noldeke, says, quote, It is a poor evasion to deny that the Phoenicians were genuine Shemites, since even our scanty sources of information suffice to show that in matters of religion, which among the Shemites is of such supreme importance, they bore a close resemblance to the ancient Hebrews and Arameans. Thank you very much. Because the rest of the world teaches the opposite, that the Phoenicians were actually Canaanites and not Israelites. Now, of course, they were paganized Israelites, which may have given a tip-off it was probably the reason why the secular historians include them as non-Hebrews. Anyway, this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica, edition 11, volume 24, page 619. Quote, anyone who accepts this reading of the Amarna, oh, no, that's <laughs> that's a spot, there's there's a... a a gnat crawling on my screen. Anyone who accepts this reading of the Amarna tablets may be glad to know that the Phoenicians, who according to many writers made settlements in Britain and must therefore be counted among the ancestors of the British, were not, as has been taught, of the accursed race of Canaan, but were of the race of Shem, and that at least as far as their Phoenician ancestors go, the British have rightfully inherited nearly all the promises made to Shem's descendants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not to mention us Americans and the various nations of Europe. To people who believe that the British are the literal descendants of the ancient Israelites and who have satisfactorily traced back to an Israelitish origin the other ruling tribes who settled in Britain, this interpretation of the Amarna tablets showing that the Phoenicians were also Israelites, supplies a hitherto missing link in their chain of evidence. Very good, Mrs. Bristow. Again, she shows herself to be very astute compared to all the other archaeologists and historians. Chapter 8. The Supposed Hittite Empire. The Amarna tablets, in conjunction with the Bible, not only prove the true identity of the Phoenicians, but disprove the theory held by some archaeologists that the Hittites, one of the seven tribes descended from Canaan, son of Ham, became a great people, and that for many centuries, quote, a great Hittite empire existed in the countries north and east of Palestine. It is chiefly from monumental discoveries made in Asia Minor, Syria, and Mesopotamia that the theory of the existence of a Hittite empire has been evolved. One of its originators is Professor Sace, who in the year 1880, quote, proclaimed the fact that a great Hittite empire extending from Kadesh to Smyrna had risen from the dead, unquote, under the heading of Hittites in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Okay, I think the only dispute here is how great that empire was. The fact that it existed is not in dispute. But that fact was in dispute by secular 
archaeologists for a long, long time until they did discover several Hittite cities. And the remains of those Hittite cities still exist, but they were in Turkey. So the Hittites were the northernmost, at least they had been driven north by whatever forces to the north of the other Canaanite tribes, and there they settled. Ultimately, these same Hittites became provided the Jews and the rabbis for the Khazars when they were converted to Judaism, as I have more recently discovered uh, more around 861 A.D., correcting the more, more common belief that this happened around 70, 740 A.D., and I'll be talking more about that tomorrow on Bloodlines, but let's continue. That empire, that is the Hittite Empire, is said to have reached the zenith of its power about the time of the conquest of Palestine by the Israelites. Okay, so the Israelites stopped it from becoming an even greater power, which, as is now known, took place during the reign of Amenhotep IV of Egypt. The Amarna tablets show that although a great empire did exist, when and where archaeologists say it did, it was ruled not by Hittites, but by Arameans, who, as we have seen, were the same race as the Hebrews, and whose king was Duzrata of Mitanni. Okay, so this shows that the Hittites were also under tribute to Arameans. Okay, so this is, again, this is very good stuff, folks. Absolutely tremendous stuff. So I, I think, again, here she is correct. Yes, and we, we see, of course, the Israelites taking over this entire territory. This entire territory. Okay, hold on. I lost my place here. Have to get rid of a pop-up here. Okay. All right, so she says they were implying at least that the Hittites were under tribute to Arameans under the rule of Dizrata of Mitanni, and she said earlier in her book that Dizrata provided a princess or daughter of his for Amenhotep, either the third or fourth, I don't remember which. And of course, she was a white woman. And of course, white women have always been cherished and uh, sought after by rulers of every country, especially Israelite women, because they're very beautiful compared to Jewesses who are not. Let's continue. Dr. Isaac Taylor, in his book, The Alphabet, one of the supporters of the theory of the Hittite Empire says, quote, They were one of the most powerful peoples of the primeval world. Their empire extended from the frontiers of Egypt to the shores of the Aegean. In almost every detail, they correspond to the Hittites in the Bible. Well, that's quite true that they do correspond to the Hittites, but the question still remains is how big was their empire? Professor Bruch, oh, no, there's a German name for you, Bruch, B-R-U-G-S-C-H, Bruch says, quote, We believe we are falling into a no error if we persevere in our opinion, which recognize in these people the same Cathites, Hittites, 
about whom Holy Scripture has so much to tell us, unquote. Well, yeah, there is an identification to be made there. The question at issue is how big was that empire? And this is from the book Egypt Under the Pharaohs, page 2. Under another authority, she says, Dr. Wright, in his Empire of the Hittites, says, quote, In recent years, Egypt and Assyria have been yielding up their secrets to modern research. The veil has begun to lift from dark continents of history. As soon as the key was found to the hieroglyphics of Egypt and the cuneiforms of Assyria, a mighty Hittite people began to emerge. They appeared chiefly as a nation of warriors in constant conflict with the great monarchies on their borders. But in almost every detail, they correspond to the Hittites of the Bible, unquote. And Mrs. Bristow states, On the contrary, those people do not correspond to the Hittites of the Bible. This fact other writers have realized. In the Times History, volume 2, page 391, we read that since, as it is now known, the Hittites became a great people, quote, the Bible records or records must be faulty, unquote, in saying that they were the descendants of Heth, son of Canaan, and that the Israelites easily overcame them. The desire to expose the fallacy of a theory which seems to confute the Bible records has prompted my investigation of the grounds for the archaeologist's theory of a Hittite empire. Only the gist of their arguments can be given in this book, but their conclusions are given and my reasons for disputing them. Believing that, in the Apostle Paul's words, quote, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, unquote, I take the Bible as my key to ancient history. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, we learn that Canaan's race was to be a subjugated race. That is correct. And so were the Edomites, although as tributaries and as servants to the Israelites, not as chattel slaves. Let's continue. Refusing, therefore, to believe that even for a limited period the Hittites, who were Canaanites, could have possessed the great empire I have researched for, or searched for, and found what I consider convincing proof that the empire which existed in the countries north of Palestine during the 18th dynasty in Egypt was an Aramean, not a Hittite empire. And it could certainly be that these Hittites were under tribute to the Arameans. The Arameans, like the Hebrews, were descendants of Shem, from whose some Aram they derived their name. While the Hebrews' name was derived from Eber, who was Shem's great-grandson. Where in the Bible, the Hebrew patriarch Jacob is described as a Syrian. The original word for Syrian is Arami, Deuteronomy 26, verse 5. The land of Syria was called Aram at one time, and its inhabitants were called Arameans. In fact, their language is still called Aramaic to this day. Although the Hittites of the so-called Hittite Empire are said to have been the same people as the Bible Hittites, both the Bible and monumental inscriptions show that this could not have been the case. Those Bible Hittites are proved by Egyptian inscriptions and also by the more reliable evidence of the Amarna tablets, to have been conquered by the first kings of the 18th dynasty and to have remained tributary subjects of Egypt until the reign of Amenhotep IV, the last authenticated king of the 18th dynasty, when they were conquered by the Israelites under Joshua. As it was during the 18th dynasty that the Hittites are supposed to have become a great empire, they cannot have been the Hittites of the Bible. 
In support of the theory that of the Hittite Empire, it might be argued that there were Hittite kings such as chiefs in Solomon's time, and that in the time of the prophet Elisha, quote, Hittite kings were hired by the king of Israel to fight for him against his enemies, Second Kings 10, that only an independent race could have possessed those warrior kings is evident. While those quote-unquote Hittite kings are claimed by Professor Sace for his Hittite empire, I maintain that they were Aramaeans who, for certain reasons to be explained later, were called Hittites. Now this I have to agree with because it was forbidden for the Israelites to make a league of peace or any kind of league with Canaanites. Period. Just go back to Deuteronomy 7.1 where it says we are not to intermarry with them. And we're not to make leagues with them, etc. So, Mrs. Bristow is right on the money here. And continuing, while those quote-unquote Hittite kings uh, are claimed by Professor Seth for his Hittite empire, she maintains the opposite is true. And we continue. Uh, let's see. Okay, yeah, and, and many of these people actually doubted the existence at ta- that time of Hittite kings and warriors, and the reliability of the Bible passages in which those kings are mentioned has been questioned. So it's obvious that the main body of historians and archaeologists here are confused on this point as to whether they were Hittites or Aramaeans. Continuing, on the strength of this theory of a Hittite empire, to which he says those Hittite kings belonged, Professor Sace defends those passages. He writes that, quote, recent discoveries, unquote, which have revealed to him a Hittite empire, have retorted the critic's objections upon himself. He says, quote, it is not the biblical writer, but the modern author who is now proved to have been unacquainted with the contemporaneous history of the time. The Hittites were a very real power, unquote, from his book, The Hittites. So they probably were, they, maybe they were greater than the other Canaanite tribes, probably because they held out the longest, but it's evident that they weren't the great power that he and many others have assumed to be. Page 45 now. This explanation of the Hittite chiefs or kings mentioned in the Bible, namely that they belong to a powerful empire existing outside Palestine, is undoubtedly the right one. But that that powerful empire was a Hittite empire is, in the light of Bible prophecy, impossible. Canaan's descendants were to serve the descendants of Shem. They were to be servants of servants, a slave race. A great Hittite empire would have been utterly inconsistent with that prophecy. To vindicate the infallibility of Bible prophecy and the consistency of the Bible records, we must prove that the empire to which those Hittite kings belonged was not of the accursed race of Canaan, but belonged to the chosen race of Shem. Thanks to Professor Satha's valuable discoveries, my arguments to prove this are based on scientific facts, for they have shown him that there was at least an element of Aramean in his Hittite empire. He remarks upon the curious fact that in the Assyrian inscriptions the name Khatia or Hittite and Syrian or Aramean became synonymous. Let me repeat this. He remarks upon the curious fact 
that in the Assyrian inscriptions, the name Hatta or Hittite and Syrian or Aramean became synonymous. In other words, that the names Hittite and Aramean used in inscriptions described the same people. He illustrates this fact by an inscription of Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, which shows that either Arameans and Hittites inhabited the same country or were the same people. Here again, we have to consider the fact that most archaeologists, because of their hatred for the Bible, say it's not included, seriously doubted that the Hittites ever existed. And then when in, in Turkey such a people were discovered to have existed, then they blew them out of proportion. Apparently that's the case, and I think this is the argument that Mrs. Sidney Bristow is making. Kudos to her for discovering all this. Okay, and Jeffrey says, Mrs. Wyatt proposes that Tut's father is the pharaoh of the Exodus Red Sea debacle. Uh, Well, not necessarily his father, but I would think grandfather, because uh, Tutankhamun is Tut, of course, and uh, we're, we're seeing here that there were four generations from the pharaoh of the Exodus who was killed during the Exodus, and then we have three monarchs after him. So I would say grandfather, but we'll see what Mrs. Sidney Bristow, that's an interesting point, Jeffrey, we'll take that into consideration as we read on. So let's continue. So where was I? Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, that they were equivalent, that the Arameans and the Hittites were equated in several historical records. And this, for me, also clears up a lot of confusion by other historians who I generally have conceded as pro-white authors who have talked about the Hittites as well and have regarded them as non-white, non-Arameans, etc. So this really clears things up with the writings of other authors who have made the same mistake as Professor Sait here. And then I may want to look at those uh, books again with this in mind, okay, because it just, uh, I was confused as to, you know, how great an empire the Hittite kingdom actually was. But let's continue. He illustrates this fact by an inscription of Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, which shows that either Arameans and Hittites inhabited the same country or were the same people. This curious fact, the professor explains by saying that Hittites had at some time imposed their yoke upon Arameans, and of course she's arguing the exact opposite, because of which he says, quote, Hittite and Aramean cities and tribes were intermingled together. He writes, quote, the Hittites had, in short, never been more than a conquering upper class in Syria. As time were, wore on, the subject population, Arameans presumably, she puts in a question mark here, gained more and more upon them. Like all similar aristocracies, they tended to die out or to be absorbed by the native population. Unquote. Upon this unbiased evidence, <laughs> I think she's being facetious here, that a strong Aramean element existed in the so-called Hittite Empire, 
I found my arguments to prove that that empire was, in fact, Aramaic. The true explanation of the confusion between the names Hittite and Aramaic is, I maintain, judging by the Amarna letters, that instead of the Hittites having imposed their yoke upon the Aramaeans, the Aramean king Duzrada of Mitanni had shortly before the conquest of Palestine by the Israelites taken possession of part of the land of the Hittites by permission of the Egyptian king, his brother-in-law, and had called himself the chief of the Hittites, because of which he is sometimes called upon the tabloids. Well, he had just defeated the Hittites, and there he is calling himself the chief or ruler over the Hittites. And of course, this description of himself is now misunderstood as him being an actual Hittite. Because there's a, we have the same problem with Ruth, right? The so-called Moabitess. And of course, even Moses is referred to as an Egyptian in several places in the Old Testament. Of course, he lived in Egypt, but he was not an Egyptian by race. He was an Israelite of Shem, not a Hamite, even though they were the same race. Let's continue. So, so because of this confusion of titles and names, they assumed that he was an actual Hittite by race, and because of which he is sometimes called upon to tablets. So he's referred to as the ruler over the Hittites. I don't think he is named in the Amarna letters, although there is correspondence between Dizrata and the Egyptian pharaohs. I'm not sure what name he uses there because most of these regents in the old world had numerous titles and numerous names, and you never know uh, which name is being referred to, whether it's a personal name or merely a title. But my understanding is that regents addressing one another by letter often use their individual names, their given names, not just their titles. But let's continue. So, by permission of the Egyptian king, his brother-in-law had called himself the chief of the Hittites, because of which he is sometimes called upon the tablets, the king of the land of the Hittites, while his soldiers are called the Hittites, Kati, the men of the Lord land of the land of the Hittites, I should pronounce it Chati, that's the C-H, the guttural C-H of the Hebrew, that the name Hittite clung for generations to the Aramaeans seems to be the best explanation of the fact that the words Hittite and Aramaean were used synonymously in monumental inscriptions and also in the Bible. Very good. She has really done her homework. As we have seen, Professor Sace unintentionally supports my theory of an Aramaean empire by showing that a strong Aramaean element existed in that empire, although, according to him, it was ruled by Hittites. Dr. Hall, who believes in the Hittite empire, also gives involuntary support to my theory by showing that, at least in Syria, the Aramaeans overcame the Hittites about the time of the conquest of Palestine by the Israelites. He writes, quote, Damascus became the center of an Aramaean state, and gradually the Amorites and Hittites of the Arantes Valley and northern Syria were swamped or absorbed and driven out by the steady pressure of the Arameans, 
on page 400. This, he says, took place about the time of the revolution in Amenhotep IV's reign, when, he adds, in all probability, the Hebrew invasion of Palestine also took place, unquote. So, all of these people pretty much agree that these Amarna letters are around the time of Joshua invading Palestine. There was tremendous disagreement about this up until very recently, when, of course, Mount Ebal, a tablet containing the name of Yahweh, was found on Mount Ebal, and it contained the curses of chapter Deuteronomy, where Joshua and his men pronounced curses upon themselves if they failed to do what they were swearing to do. The name of Yahweh and the word curse in Hebrew is on that tablet, which is dated to 1406 B.C. So, let's continue. According to this, the Hittites of Solomon's reign, instead of being a very real power, had been at any rate in some districts swamped or absorbed and driven out by Arameans. To this evidence upon my side, Major Condor adds by showing that the Arameans, who, as Dr. Hall tells us, conquered Damascus, were led by Dusrata of Mitanni. Dr. Hall, however, ignores Dusrata's conquest of Damascus and tells us that Dusrata was conquered about the time by a great Hittite king named... Okay, all right, this is going to take me a while to decipher this one. Subeluliuma, Subeluliuma, I know that guy, Subeluliuma, who reigned over the so-called Hittite Empire. This belief, which is shared by other writers, is founded upon certain cuneiform inscriptions, which we shall examine later. Those inscriptions are of a later date and of a less reliable character. By the following arguments, I hope to show that Professor Sace's Hittite Empire was an Aramean Empire ruled over by Dusrata of Mitanni, and that Dr. Hall's great Hittite Subeluliuma did not exist at all. Whoa! So she's totally rejecting the mainstream analysis of this altogether, except for a couple of good archaeologists who uh, had made the correct assumptions from their research. Okay, I'm going to take a quick break here. We're on, uh, let me see here. Uh, There's no page number. Oh, yes. Uh, I think it's 48. It's hard to read. Uh, Yeah, we'll be continuing on 48. Chapter 9, Dusrata and his empire, which I am now intrigued as to who this guy Dusrata actually was. Who is he referred to as in the Bible? Very interesting. So let's see, what kind of uh, music can we share with everybody here at this moment? Because I have to take a break. And uh, let's see here. Should we do rock and roll? Let's see what we have. Or Oh, well, yeah. I love this, this band. Uh, they have an album called Battle Cry. And <clears throat> I need to open this. All right. Open Sesame. The album is called Today Belongs With Us. And the song is called Blood and Honor. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, hordes of Anglo-Saxons conquering the countryside. Can't wait to see that. Okay, chapter 9, Dusrata and his empire. So who is this guy, Dusrata? Is he actually mentioned in the Bible? We'll find out, I hope. Now, I have read this book once before because I do have it in my library, but this was a long time ago, maybe 15 years ago, and so I was not really comprehending what she was saying most of the time here. But now with all the evidence coming out about the Amarna tablets in recent archaeology, all of this is making way more sense now. So let's continue. Dusrata and his empire. My first argument is that Dusrata was so great a king and ruled over so extensive an empire that no other powerful people antagonistic to him could have existed in the same part of the world where the so-called Hittite empire is supposed to have been or flourished. The extent of Dusrata's empire is proved by his titles. He always calls himself the king of Mitanni, which, which country is thought to have been in Mesopotamia or have been Mesopotamia. Uh, so says Petrie in his book Syria and Egypt, page 177. As king of Mesopotamia alone, Dusrata must have been rich and powerful, for with its ancient system of canals, that country was probably at the same, at that time, the most fertile in the world. Dr. Hall says that Dusrata ruled Assyria and perhaps Babylon as well. Another of Dusrata's titles was King of Armenia the name of which country was evidently derived from the, the name Aram, Shem's son, as was that of Syria, of which he was also king. He is sometimes called the king of Naharem, or Narima, the Aram Naharem of the Bible, or Syria of the two rivers, another name for Mesopotamia, according to Professor Says. The name Naharima, or Naharem, was, according to Professor Weber, the Egyptian designation for Mitanni. Dusrata is also called the king of Kassai. Ah, here we go, the Kassites. King of Kassi, K-A-S-S-I, which country was Cappadocia in Asia Minor? Uh, according to the Hittite inscriptions, according to Professor Sais, and is also said to have ruled over the Anatolians, people of Asia Minor. There is evidence which we shall notice later that he reigned in Cilicia. Asia Minor was evidently largely, if not entirely, ruled by Dusrata. He is sometimes called the king of the Minions, the people who, according to Major Condor, were descended from the Hyksos, or shepherd kings who had conquered Egypt many centuries before, and who are called Men or Menti, upon the Egyptian monuments. The land of the Minions was southern Armenia. Its inhabitants were, its inhabitants were Major Connor thinks, the Midi, mentioned in the 55th chapter of Jeremiah, where the kingdoms of Midi and Ararat are connected. As Ararat is situated in Armenia, whose king Dusrata called himself the king of the Minions, this seems evident. Dusrata is also called the king of the land of Haniga. Now there's a, there's a, it's, the word is obscured here, sorry. 
Hedegalba, something like that. Hedegalba or Kanarabi, which Major Connor thinks meant the land of the great Connor prince. As Shem, Aram, Eber, and Abraham seem to have lived in Dusrata's land, and probably Noah as well, that name may have come from one or more of those patriarchs. In the 23rd chapter of Genesis, Abraham is called a mighty prince. These different titles alone prove that Dusrata's empire was such that a rival power could hardly have fought its way to greatness in the same part of the world. And his alliance with the Egyptian kings makes it impossible that the Hittites, who were their subjects, could have done so. That Dusrata, the Egyptian king, Amenhotep III, were firm allies is proved by the fact that after he had conquered a Hittite army, brought against him by a rebellious subject of his own, Dusrata was allowed by the Egyptian king to take possession of some of the Hittite cities in the north of Palestine, which up to then had been governed by the Egyptians. And of course, Dusrata's daughter was married to an Egyptian king, probably this same Amenhotep III. One of Dusrata's letters shows that the Hittite cities he asked for were boundary cities. He probably wanted to ensure his country from further Hittite attacks. The, the prefect or perfect understanding between Dusrata and Amenhotep III is shown by the letter in which this is uh, the Marna Tablets, page 174, in which Dusrata perhaps playfully calls himself in writing to Amenhotep, quote, the chief of the power of the land of the Hittites, unquote, although the Hittites had been for several generations subjects of the Egyptian kings. Dusrata did not rule over all the Hittites, for according to the Bible, a Hittite army fought against the Israelites before Sidon, while Dusrata himself, as the tablets prove, fought on the side of the Israelites against the Canaanites. It was probably he, as we have seen, who handed over Sidon to Joshua after the battle in front of that city. Okay, so who that was Hiram, a descendant of Dusrata? Is that a possibility? Just speculating here, folks. Major Condor writes about Dusrata, quote, he was a younger man than Amenhotep, Amenhotep III. His sister married the said king of Egypt. His daughter, okay, so his sister married Amenhotep III, and his daughter, Tarekipa, married Amenhotep IV. And there were friend relations between Egypt and Mitanni in the latter as in the former reign. Amarna Tablet, page 95. As the kings of the 18th dynasty were partly or entirely descended from the Hyksos rulers, there were racial ties between the kings of Mitanni and Egypt, as well as ties of marriage, for Dusrata was also descended of the Hyksos kings. I'm not sure that this identification of the Mitanni with the Hyksos works, but that's what it says, so I'll just continue. That Dusrata and his father consider themselves equal or even superior to the Egyptian kings is shown by the following letter, from which we see how many times Egyptian kings had to ask for Mitannian princesses before they were given to them in marriage. Now, one of the problems here of equating them with the Hyksos 
is that the Hyksos were booted out of Egypt. This was way before the Israelite captivity. So I don't think Mitanni was a powerful nation at that time. So I think there's a problem with equating the Mitanni with the Hyksos. But let's continue. So, but uh, the important thing here is there was much regal intermarriage between the Mitanni under Dusrata and these two kings, Amenhotep III and IV. Dusrata writes to Amenhotep IV, quote, the father of Amenhotep III sent to Sitatama, my grandfather, and a daughter. He sent to my grandfather five or six times and he was not given her when he sent, okay? So they had to plea for this woman five or six times before uh, she was actually sent to Egypt to be married to the Pharaoh. And at length, he was given her. Amenophis III, your father, sent, Major Connor suggests, humbly, to Sutarna, my father. And so for my father's daughter, my own sister, his heart was desirous, and five or six times he sent. At length, he was given her. All right, so the two authors agree that uh, the Pharaoh had to ask five or six times before you know, the, the woman was given to the Egyptian king. In other letters, translated by Professor Knutsen, now that's either a German name or a Swedish or Danish name, Knutsen, Dusrata bargains for at least six months with Amenhotep III before sending his daughter Tadukipa to Egypt to marry Amenhotep IV, although it is promised that she shall be the queen of Egypt. Okay, so now in the depictions of King Tutankhamun and his queen, and his queen, the profile is very Aryan, very Adamic. That has to be this woman. That has to be this woman if I can pronounce her name correctly, Tadukhipa. T-A-D-U-K-H-I-P-A. Tadukhipa. When Dusrata's sister went to Egypt to marry Amenhotep III, she had 317 ladies in her train, and inventories have been found among the Amarna tablets showing what elaborate outfits the Mitannian princesses took with them into Egypt. Tarakipa's inventory is labeled, quote, These are the things carried by the female slaves, all those things which Dusrata, king of Mitanni, gave to Amenhopus III, his brother. His kinsman, when he sent his daughter, Tarakipa, to the land of Egypt, to Amenhopus III for marriage, he gave all these that day. Amongst Tarakipa's dowry were horses, a chariot, and harness plated with gold and silver and adorned with precious stones, camel litters, a saddle adorned with golden eagles, variegated garments worked with gold embroidered zones, and shawls, necklaces, and bracelets of solid gold, one bracelet of iron gilt, carved boxes to hold treasures, gems of stones of great light, which Major Condor thinks may have been diamonds, a necklace of 120 gems set in gold, including green stones, probably emeralds, objects of jade, 
bronze ornaments for horses and one umbrella adorned with adorned with gold. Okay, that, that that's not worthy of a, a dowry. <laughs> Major Condor, who gives this list, remarks, "Quote." The inventories of Tarukipa's marriage outfit show how far advanced was the civilization of Western Asia in the 14th century B.C. and indicate not only the native wealth of gold and silver, copper, bronze from Asia Minor and the Caucasus, but also a trade which brought jade from Central Asia. The art of the age is similar to that of the objects found in Troy and Mycenae. Very good, the Celts. The wreath at that Duzrada says he is sent, of course, the, the Celts were Israelites of descended from Zarajuda. The wreath that Duzrada says he is sending to Amenhotep III was, according to Knudsen's translation, quote, quote, a costly wreath of roses made of beautiful lazur stein, lapis lazuli, and of gold. Lazur stein, which means stone. It was probably like the exquisite wreaths found in Hyksos tombs in Egypt and illustrated in the Encyclopedia whoops, Britannica, edition 2, volume 15, page 307, the designs of which rival those of modern Parisian jewelry. Desrata shows the playful turn of mind to which I refer later and which has some strange results by wishing that the wreath he is sending may, quote, adorn the neck of the Egyptian king for 100,000 years. Okay, should we all live that long? Not not with the pain <laughs> that comes with life these days, that's for sure. That Dizrata, king of Mitanni or Mesopotamia, Armenia, and Syria, the ruler of parts, if not all, of Asia Minor, the king of the Minyans, the wonderful people who had once conquered and reigned in Egypt, the king of the land of the great prince, who was also the relation and ally of the Egyptian kings, could have been overcome by the Hittites, one of the seven Canaanitish tribes who had for generations been tributary to the Egyptians, is impossible, she says. That was one long sentence. Yet the translators believe that Hittites conquered Druzrata, they ignore his claims to victory, which claims we shall presently examine, and accepting other evidence which contradicts his, they say that he was overcome by a Hittite king, who they take for granted belonged to the same race as the Hittites of the Bible, and who they believe at the same time was the ruler of a great Hittite empire. Their reasons for believing this, as well as my reasons for believing the opposite, must now be given. Go for it, Mrs. Bristow. Excellent work. Chapter 10, Dusrata's Letters. Of all the translations of Dusrata's letters, Major Condors are the most convincing, chiefly because they are more colloquial than others. This is explained by the fact that the language of the Amarna tablets is much like that of the modern peasantry of Palestine which language Major Condor had spoken daily for seven years uh, in his preface. His translations, which I mostly quote, may therefore be more accurate than others. They can hardly be less so. Professor Petrie, who publishes Professor Winkler's translations of the Amarna tablets, refers to the accession of Dusrata 
and his troubles from the Hatti or Hittites. He remarks that as a Hatti, land was close to Dusrata's country of Mitanni. Dusrata would naturally be in the way of their attacks, Syria and Egypt, from that book by Professor Winkler. The land of Hattitan, shown by inscriptions to have been conquered by Amenhotep II, who after its conquest crossed the Euphrates to invade Dusrata's land of Mitanni, is evidently meant by Professor Petrie. The Hatti, therefore, who were troubling Dusrata lived in the biblical land of the Hittites and were tributary, as we have seen, to the Egyptians. For according to the Bible, the Hittites' land was bounded by the Euphrates, as was the land of Hattitan, of Egyptian inscriptions. Why those tributary Hittites dared to attack Dusrata, we see by the following letter, which also shows that the Hatti's attacks did not trouble Dusrata so much as the professor seems to think they did. Dusrata writes to Amenhotep III, he says that someone who Major Condor thinks was a rebellious brother of Dusrata's brought, quote, all who were in the land of the Hittites into his land, that he was not afraid and had slain all the chiefs who had supported his brother and him as well, and not, not one of the Hittites had returned to his own land. Major Condor's opinion that it was, I guess he annihilated the whole army, is meant by that uh, verse. None of the Hittites returned to their own land. Major Condor's opinion that it was Dizrata's brother who brought the Hittites against him in battle is probably the right one, for unless led by someone of that kind, the Hittites who were tributary to the Egyptian king could hardly have dared to attack Dizrata, the relation and friend of their lord and master. That the Hittites were tributary to Amenhotep III as the other Canaanites of Palestine were, is proved by Dizrata's letters, as well as by the Egyptian inscriptions before referred to. In what Major Condor says is a much broken letter, Dizrata writes to Amenhotep about the marriage of his daughter, Tarakipa, to Amenhotep's son, afterwards Amenhotep IV, also known as Akhenaten. Dizrata says, My court having decided to accept and being satisfied as well as my wife, and the girl being heartily pleased, how happy she is, words cannot tell. For me, the decision is from the gods. My brother, surely you know that I shall be glad. My brother, Kamas, is referring to uh, the king. Here, Dizrata comes to business. Quote, Proclaim thou for me that whatever people west of the Minyan country, according to Major Condor, the Hittites' land was west of that country, I being the great chief of the Hittites and, and ruling over them, not necessarily a Hittite by race, taking unto me my brother all the people that are conquered, let it extend to the city of Haran. Of course, Haran is uh, in Armenia and is where, of course, Abraham stemmed from. Let's continue. Dizrata evidently asks Amenhotep III to proclaim him the chief of the Hittites. Very interesting. The next sentence from another broken letter proved that it, that, that was Dizrata's meaning. He writes to his son-in-law Amenhotep IV after Amenhotep III's death, telling him how his father had complied with that request and in return for his daughter had established him in the Hittite cities. Now, this is interesting because of the research, the recent research I just quoted at the top of the show, 
that it's possible that Amenhotep III and fourth reigned together. So it's possible that Amenhotep III was becoming ill with age, and therefore there was a co-regency with his son, Amenhotep IV. And that's, that's often the case in many kingdoms. As the present king gets older, he grooms his son for the kingship, to, for him to take over upon his death. This would Now, maybe that was not the tradition in Egypt in those days, but uh, maybe they broke with that tradition and created it. But nevertheless, this is very common in ancient history for the son to be groomed to take over as the father gets older. So let's continue. I believe this is page 60. It's hard to read the writing here. Duzrata writes, quote, And Amenhotep III established us for the future, and so receiving, I was made great in the cities which for Tarukipa, in all of them, he made us to dwell as conquerors, unquote. So I guess as part of the bargain, Dizrata claimed these Hittite cities. These two letters corroborate one another, The accuracy of their translations can hardly be doubted. They show plainly that the Hittites had been tributary to Amenhotep III before their conquest by Dizrata, who naturally had to ask Amenhotep's consent before taking final possession of them. Very good. Knudsen's translation of the same letter agrees in important points with that of Major Condor. It shows that Dizrata asked to be made protector over Hittite cities and volunteered to guard the Egyptian boundaries with his own Mitannian soldiers. In another letter, Dizrata offers Amenhotep's soldiers trained by himself. Those soldiers were probably the, quote, men from Kassai, whom the Canaanite ruler Ribadi begs the Egyptian king to send him to help him against the Israelites. These Soldiers, according to Professor Petrie, were Egyptian auxiliary troops. That Dizrata only ruled over part of the Hittites in Palestine is proved by the fact that according to the Bible, a Hittite army fought against Joshua before Sidon, while, as the tablets show, Dizrata was fighting upon Joshua's side. Dizrata's letter announced his victory over the Hittites is also published by Professor Petrie. Although somewhat different from Major Condor's translation, it shows that Dizrata conquered the Hittites. Dizrata says, quote, The Kati, or Hatti, Hittites, came into Dizrata's land, but Dizrata's god, Teshub, gave them into his hand. Dizrata sends a chariot, two horses, a lad, and a girl of the booty of Hatti, also five chariots, chariots and pairs of horses, etc., Although he publishes this triumphant letter, Professor Petrie remarks that at that time the Hittites had begun to occupy Syria, that would be Dizrata's land. It could only have been as a prisoner of war. Professor Hogarth, like Professor Petrie, ignores Dizrata's claims to victory. He announces definitely that, quote, the Hittite king conquered Dizrata, king of Mitanni, and by doing so obtained lasting dominion in Syria. Okay, so she's arguing the exact opposite again. Major Condor gives Dizrata the benefit of the doubt, 
He writes, quote, Thus does Radha, who says that he has conquered the Hittites, would seem to have swallowed up the Hittite king, and the Mongol population were to be ruled from Armenia. Whoa! He equates the Hittites with Mongols? I had never heard that association before. Or were there Mongols from Asia in that territory? All right, so he says, she says, his expression, Mongol populations, means Hittites. Very interesting. He also writes, quote, from Dusrata's great Hittite letter, it appears that the king of the Minions, whose country was called Mitanni, west of Lake Van in Armenia, claimed to be king of the Hittites, page 47. Professor Weber, who also seemed to doubt Dusrata's victory over the Hittites, writes, quote, Dusrata says he destroyed the Hittite army. He quotes Dusrata's words. Not one returned to his own country. Knutzen, page 1035. The translator's reasons for doubting Dusrata's claim to victory deserves, of course, careful examination. Professor Weber gives his reason. He writes, quote, The Hatati king is said to be an enemy of Tuzarada, now spelled T-U-S-A-R-A-T-T-A, of Mitanni, who relates that he has had to divide a decisive victory over the Hittites. On the other hand, Ribadi tells the king of Egypt that the Hatti king has conquered the Mitanni land. This is probably an error by Ribadi. The professor seems to accept Ribadi's word against that of Dusrata, which is strange, for upon cross-examination, Ribadi's evidence proves most unreliable. Chapter 11. Ribadi was, as we have seen, the Canaanitish ruler of Phoenician cities, which were being besieged by the Israelites whom he sometimes called the Haberi or Sagas. Remember, our people, Genesis 21.12, in Isaac, or Saka, shall thy seed be called, and at other times called the sons of Abdesherah. Of course, Abdesherah being Joshua. He was evidently bewildered by what Professor Petrie describes as the complex politics of his time, and a more puzzling position than his could hardly be imagined. He was placed much as a loyal Indian prince of today would be if suddenly attacked by strange armies which could not, which he could not identify and which were conquering the British possessions in India while the British troops, instead of opposing the invaders, were leaving the country and his appeals to the British government for help received no answer. That Ribadi could not make out who his enemies were any more than why they were attacking him, is shown by his letters to Amenhotep IV, which also show that he could not understand Amenhotep's policy. In some letters, he begs for Amenhotep's help. In others, he accuses that king of allowing the Israelites to take the cities of Palestine. He writes, quote, And you relinquish the wealth of all the lands. Why is then this overthrow of thy land? Unquote. And why are you favorable to the Hebrew chiefs and unfavorable to the native subjects, princes? He writes again, Who is Abdesherah? A slave, a dog. O king, it is thy land, 
and they have joined the king in the land of Mitanni. But come to us. And also since that time, your, your father, the city of Sidon, has submitted to the occupation by his allies, that is, Abdesheris. Let the king regard the message of his servant. Let him give me, or men, to guard his city. It is not she insulted, hold on, is not she insulted by all the men of blood, the Amiludi Saga, the Saxon warriors, and since the king's heart altogether has forgotten my Egyptian soldiers, Bitati, I send to Yankamu and to Biri, Egyptian officials in Palestine, page 74. In another letter, Ribadi writes, quote, And my sons are servants of the king, and our expectation is from the king. The city is perishing. My lord has pronounced our death. And, behold, the king lets slip from his hand the chief city, which is faithful to him, but you care not for us, unquote. It seems to me that these quotations prove that Amenhotep the third and fourth could not or would not defend the Sidonians against the invaders, be they Israelites or Mitanni. But of course, again, we are up against secular authors who do not want to believe the Bible. So they invent different stories that make no sense. But it makes sense to them, of course. All right, so you care not for us, he says. That Amenhotep IV should willingly relinquish his possessions in Palestine to the Israelites must have seemed inexplicable to Rabadi. And that's spelled R-I-B-A-D-D-I. He probably knew little or nothing about the Egyptian king's change of religion or the miraculous events in Egypt recorded in the book of Exodus which had led up to it that he could not clearly identify his adversaries as evident. He writes to Amenhotep, Who are the sons of the Abdeshera? The king of the Kasi and the king of Mitanni are they, and they that take the king's lands for themselves, unquote. And of course, that was by treaty, part of the dowry for the uh, giving his daughter to the pharaoh. As Dusrata was both king of Akasi and of Mitanni, this shows that Ribadi was under some misconception about him. We see, too, that he confuses him with the sons of Abdesherah, but of course, namely the Israelites. However, she also has stated that they were both attacking Sidon and Tyre at the same time. In another letter, Ribadi confuses Dusrata with the king of the Hittites. He writes, who are the sons of Abdesherah that they take the land of the king for themselves? The king of Mitanni are they, and the king of Kasi and the king of Hadi, the Hittite land. I hope to show that although Ribadi seems to mention three different kings, they were really one and the same person under different titles, and that that person was Dizrata of Mitanni. Convinced as I am of this, the following letter quoted by Professor Weber as proof that Dizrata was conquered by Hittites seems to me only more evidence that Ribadi could not understand what was going on in Palestine outside of his own cities. Ribadi writes, quote, The king of the Hatti has conquered the lands of the king of Mitanni 
or the king of Narima, that is Mesopotamia, Dusrata's land. After which statement, Ribadi says, the lands of the king has Abdashara the dog taken, unquote. So, it's pretty evident here that Mrs. Sidney Bristow has got this all correct. And the vast majority of the archaeologists, Egyptologists, etc., have not understood this time period and who these people are. I'm still curious, uh, who is Duzrata in Scripture? Is there a scriptural name for this king? I don't recall her identifying him, uh, giving him a scriptural name. Maybe she will. But with about 10 minutes left, let's continue. That Ribadi should refer to Abdashara here, that he should call him a dog, apparently because of the king of Hadi's misdoings, suggests that he thought they were the same person. Yet in other letters, Abdashara was, according to Ribadi, the king of Mitanni. He writes, quote, Who is Abdashara, the dog, who takes the king's lands for himself? The king of Mitanni and the king of Kasi is he. These contradictory remarks disqualify Ribadi's evidence that it has been preferred to that of Dusrada is incomprehensible. Ribadi's evidence puzzles the German professors as their comments upon one of his letters show. Ribadi writes to Amenhotep IV, quote, I have heard that the Hatti people burn the land with fire. All the lands of the king, my lord, are taken, and now see the soldiers of the Hatti land come to take Gubla. I fear for the town, and now hear about the people. They have given all the silver and gold to the sons of Abdeshera, and the sons of Abdeshera have given it to the mighty king. Unquote. Okay, so here again is the confusion. The king of the Hatti, Dizrata, calls himself that because he defeated them militarily and now calls himself the ruler over them. And this is apparently what Ribadi, the, the cause of Ribadi's confusion about Dusrata. So let's continue. All right, and so why would Dusrata give all the gold and silver to the Israelites? Well, he was their ally, <laughs> and he was a kinsman. He was an Aramean, after all. This letter is commented upon by Professor Knudsen's book, quote, The Hadi king is naturally called the mighty king, through whom the sons of Abdeshera became strong after they had given him gold and silver. Upon another page of the same book, however, the commentator writes of the same letter, quote, The people had given all the gold and silver to the sons of Abdeshera, and they had given them to the mighty king, who, he adds, is in every case the king of Mitanni. Well, who gave what to whom here? <laughs> Let's see if Mrs. Bristow straightens this up. It sounds like the king of the Mitanni, Dusrata, gave the silver and gold to the Israelites. Considering that the professors believe that the king of Hatti and the king of Mitanni were different people and hostile to each other, this seems a serious difference of opinion for which no explanation is given. Incidentally, and from another point of view, this letter invites further speculation. Ribadi had heard vague rumors of a mighty king to whom the sons of Abdesherah, the Israelites, had given gold and silver, and who, in return, had made them strong. Like the professors, Ribadi was undecided as to whether the mighty king was the Hittite king or the Mitannian king. 
But surely the greatest probability is that he was neither, or he was both. Remembering the strict command given to the Israelites that the silver and gold taken from the Canaanites was to be sacred to their God, it seems obvious that only to him would they, with Joshua's consent, have offered their spoils of silver and gold. Joshua 6, verse 9, or sorry, 19. The one thing clearly proved by Rabadi's evidence is that he was being attacked at the same time by the king of Mitanni, people he called the Hittites, and the Israelites, sons of Abdesherah. That the Israelites and the king of Mitanni should have been allies is natural, for they were all Hebrews. But if the king of the Hittites had been a Canaanite, as he is thought to have been, his alliance with the Israelites would have been most unnatural, and of course it would have been forbidden by Yahweh and Joshua. So it's really obvious that the king of Sidon, who himself was a Canaanite, would have mistaken the Mitanni for for Hittites. So what we see, the Hittites would have been a Canaanite people living to the north of Sidon, and the king of Sidon simply mistakes these people for Hittites. Uh, And it was not uncommon for the Canaanites to have wars among themselves. So let's continue. The only solution of the problem presented by Rabadi's evidence seems to me to be that Desrata was both the king of Mitanni and the ruler, or she says the king, of the Hittites mentioned in that evidence. In other letters, Rabadi says, quote, Behold, the soldiers of the land of the Hittites have trampled down our, our papyrus. Okay, as we see, as we have seen, Duzrata's soldiers were to guard the Egyptian king's boundaries in the land of the Hittites, and he had been given Hittite towns. It is not, it is not strange, therefore, that Ribadi describes them as soldiers of that land. He writes again, quote, From the Hittite chief men have fled. All the chiefs are afraid thereat. At the same time, he shows that the Israelites were also attacking his cities. He writes, quote, The sons of the dog, Abdesherah, destroy the cities and the corn and attack the governors. They demand 50 talents and have, according to Major Connor, says the verb is lost, the te- to the temples of the gods of Gebal. Probably the Israelites destroyed those temples. Page 61. The following sentence makes it certain that the Israelites were allied with Dizrata of Mitanni and Kasi and with the so-called king of the Hittites. Rabadi writes, quote, The sons of Abdesherah have joined the king of the land of Mitanni and the king of Kasi and the king of the land of the Hittites, the latter three being one and the same person. The Israelites could not have allied themselves with a Hittite king. Therefore, this king of the Hittites can only have been Dizrata. Major Condor remarks upon what he thought was an alliance between Dizrata and Hittites. He says, quote, The king of Mitanni leagued with the Hittites against Egypt. Professor Weber also mentions this alliance, but it seems not to have escaped Professor Sace's notice. He writes, quote, The Hittites were already pressing southward and were causing serious alarm to the governors and allies of the Egyptian king. Amenhotep's great ally, Dusrata, however, instead of being alarmed by the Hittites' advance southwards, 
was advancing with them, <laughs> and with them was attacking the Phoenician cities, which were tributary to the Egyptian king. If Professor Sais noticed this, how did he account for it? Major Condor's statement that the king of Mitanni leagued with the Hittites against Egypt, although satisfactory in showing that Desrata and the supposed Hittites were fighting on the same side, is otherwise misleading. It was not against Egypt, but against the Egyptian king's tributary subjects, the Canaanites, that Desrata was fighting in accordance, as already seen, with the Egyptian king's wishes. How could Dusrata have fought against the Egyptians themselves? He didn't. His sister and daughter were successively the queens of Egypt, and his letters show the affection he felt for their husbands, the Egyptian kings. Letters from Dusrata, which we shall examine later, show how impossible it is that Dusrata leagued against Egypt. Nor, I maintain, did he league against the Hittites as Major Condor thought he did. On the contrary, he, as the tablets prove, had conquered Hittites, taken possession of Hittite cities, and in a letter to the Egyptian king calls himself the chief of the Hittites. That the king of the land of the Hittites and the soldiers of the land of the Hittites, mentioned by Rabadi, must have been Dizrata and his men seems obvious, but the translators have not come to that conclusion. And here I must say, since the Egyptians were also sons of Noah and related by race to the Shemites, who the Israelites and the Mitanni were, the exchange of sons and daughters was natural, was absolutely natural. So this explains a lot of the confusion that I have found in the writings of leagues made by the Egyptians with Hittites. When According to this version of events, those Hittites were in fact Mitanni. This makes it clear. So, who was the Pharaoh of the Exodus? Was he just an evil, an evil uh, man of Ham, or was he a person of another race? Well, it seems from all this evidence here that he was in fact a Hamite, who was you know he just enslaved the Israelites, whether a Hamite or a mixed-race person, either way, it still, it still rings true. But these latter kings were allied with the Israelites and with the Mitanni because they were actually of the same race, descended from Noah. With a few minutes left here, they believed that the king of the Hittites mentioned by Rabadi was called, here's that name again, Subililuma, and that he conquered Dusrata, although it be remembered, it is admitted that Dusrata was leagued with the Hittites. Professor Hogarth writes, Sibili Luima, why did she have to repeat that word again? <laughs> Saplel or Saparua, <laughs> the Hittite king, a contemporary of Amenhotep IV of Egypt, seems to have obtained lasting dominion over Syria by subduing Dusrata of Mitanni. Of course, Mrs. Bristow says it was the exact opposite that occurred. All right, folks, this is really fantastic evidence of biblical truth, how the Israelites did overcome the Canaanites with the help of Dizrata, the Arab man, and with the, there, there was really no resistance from the kings of Egypt in those days. 
Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. Take care, everybody.